Um, we're going to start with the Exodus reading, so chapter 3, starting at verse 1, um, 1 to 10, and then we'll go from chapter 4, 21 to 23. So Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And we're continuing from chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Uh, and second Bible reading is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of God in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, St. Barnabas. One of these days I'm going to get up and I'm going to say good morning East Fremantle and you'll just, you'll forgive me, that's all right. Well over the past few weeks um, we, we've spent time uh, looking at a period of history called the birth of Christendom which stretched from AD 312 through to 590 uh, and followed on from the conversion of the Emperor Constantine to Christianity. And we saw that it has variously been characterised as either the best thing or possibly the worst thing to have befallen the church. Possibly the best thing because it was a period of unprecedented security and stability during which the church fathers accomplished a number of important things. Um, they reached agreement on which of the Christian documents were genuine and therefore authoritative for faith and life and so we have the New Testament. Uh, they, they had some lively debates uh, about what the apostles meant about a number of things from which they thrashed out some important doctrines that still are the foundation of what we believe and profess. The divinity and the humanity of Christ. The true nature of his person. Uh, the nature of God as a trinity. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But at the same time, it was possibly the worst thing that ever happened to the church because as we discovered that going from being a marginalized underground and persecuted sect to the official state religion of the Roman Empire saw the church become progressively more pagan in its thinking and its practice and so we were challenged through that series to understand our frames of reference is our understanding and is our behaviour really biblical, really Christian, or is it actually pagan? Well, this is the, the very thing we're going to address over the next seven weeks as we go through Peter's first letter to the church. And it seems that he anticipated this threat of pagan thinking coming and infiltrating the church. And so he set down a foundation for right Christian theology, right Christian thinking, and therefore a guide for right Christian living in light of what we know. 
Well, the Apostle Peter, Jesus' foremost disciple, you might remember, wrote this letter somewhere in the middle of the first century AD um, to Christians uh, scattered across the northern provinces of uh, Central Asian Minor, across the Anatolian plain up to the coast of the Black Sea. We know almost nothing about this church. We really have no idea who evangelised these people. But clearly, within less than the space of a lifetime, uh, there are Christians scattered across this whole area. And Peter's opening address to these Christians is really interesting. He gives us a theme that he's going to develop as he goes through the letter. So he introduces himself to them this way. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia and Bithynia. Exiles. Very strange way to address these Christians because exiles are usually strangers in the place where they're living. They're resident aliens. They're displaced people um, who've really got their sights on, on returning to their true homeland. But these people, well, they're living where they've always lived. They're, they're living probably where their ancestors lived. Uh, in one sense, they are at home. Their place of residence hadn't changed, you understand. They had changed. So leaving their previous gods, the, the former way of worship, the old way of life, they had become Christians. This is one of the first places in the New Testament, one of the earliest times where Jesus' followers are addressed as Christ people. And as Christians, they are no longer at home. They're no longer at home amongst their peers and relatives. They no longer fit the values and the aspirations of the culture around them. And because of this, they're now facing many troubles. From without, they're undergoing pressure to conform to the culture around them. And in fact, they're facing real persecution and real difficulty. But from within, they face a struggle. The temptation to go back to the old way of living, to conform themselves to the demands of the culture that they live in and to compromise in their thinking and in their behaviour on what it means to be a Christian. Now, by definition, an exile is someone who has their sight fixed on the place that is their true homeland. So a person whose longing and whose future expectations are fully fixed on that place and on the day they will return home. And so the whole purpose of Peter's letter is to help these believers live well as exiles, as strangers in a pagan world with their sight fixed on the right place. And 2,000 years later, Peter's word remains a powerful word to us. Because although, Christian, uh, although Western culture has been powerfully shaped by this era of Christendom and what follows, it's never actually really been a Christian culture. You couldn't meaningfully say that the world became Christian in any great sense. And today it's more true than it ever has that we are exiles and strangers in a culture that is at odds with us, or at least we're at odds with it. We no longer fit the values and the aspirations of our secular society. And so we face the inward temptation to conform ourselves to the demands of our culture, and increasingly we are facing, and we will face, hostility 
and outright opposition as Jesus' people, as Christ's people. So just as the Apostle Peter summoned his listeners to stay awake, to be sober, to be fully alert, so he will challenge us to keep our eyes open. And he's going to do that by directing our sight today to our true homeland. And so where should we begin this journey through Peter's letter? Well, we should begin it in New Zealand, of course. Um, on a hiking trail, this is, uh, this is taken on the Kepler track in the South Island of New Zealand. Now, like all photos, it's necessarily a reduced view of the landscape that we were hiking through that day. I mean, you can see that in the distance there, there are mountains with glaciers on them, but you don't really get a sense of actually how those mountains absolutely dominate the landscape around you. You can see kind of through the middle there the waters of the fjord, but you don't get a sense of how steep the sides of the mountains were or actually how far down it was to the water when you're on top of the ridge. And you can see a strip of sky there. But again, you, you don't, this photo doesn't capture the, the expansiveness of the sky above you when you're standing right on top of the world like this. It actually takes some imagination to capture the real grandeur of what that picture has as a reduced view. And that's how it is with Peter's opening sentences of his letter. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he begins. Now this is an absolutely typical Hebrew prayer of praise. And typically... It's a prayer of praise directed to God for the salvation that he's worked on behalf of his people. What we find is, verses 3 to 12 are actually one long, uninterrupted sentence spelling out this landscape of salvation, if you want to put it that way. And like my picture of New Zealand, Peter's view here of the landscape of salvation is necessarily a reduced view. It would be easy to skip through it and miss the grandeur of what's going on here. So it requires a little bit of attentive imagination if we're going to grasp the vision that Peter's presenting with us, presenting to us. So what is it that Peter's describing in this prayer of praise? What is it that God has saved us into? How does he picture the true homeland of Christian exiles? Well, it might come as a bit of a surprise to some of you to learn that the salvation that Peter describes here centers more upon a person than it ever does upon a place. He's not actually talking about a place in space or time we go when we die. We'll come back to that in a minute. But for the moment, I want you to see that Peter's description of salvation is focused entirely upon the person of Jesus Christ and it's expressed in terms of the Trinity, the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, in his opening greeting, we have one of the great Trinitarian statements that the early church used in their understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity that they hashed out, where Peter says that we are a people chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with Jesus' blood. In the blessing that follows, he's going to lay out salvation 
through this prism of the saving work of God the Father, the joy of the presence of God the Son, and the revealing work of God the Holy Spirit. Let's examine these three three more closely. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept for you. Now pay attention to the language here. Father, birth, life, inheritance. What's the metaphor that Paul is using to describe salvation? It's family language. The language here is that of children being given birth into a family and all the privileges that come with that. In the reading we had from Exodus today, we discovered God challenging Pharaoh over the ownership of the Israelites who were Pharaoh's slaves. But listen to what God calls them. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. And God, concerned about the suffering of his people and hearing their cry, sends Moses to lead them not out of one workplace and into another workplace, but into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, milk and honey has become a bit of a a cliché, but don't miss what it means, because neither milk and honey are are strictly necessary for survival. Milk and honey is what you have for dessert. Uh, Milk and honey is what you get when you're living beyond the basics of life. So uh, a, a land of milk and honey is a land of abundance. God didn't bring his people out of Israel and then into a hard and difficult place where they had to toil their whole life long to make a living. He brought them into a rich and fertile place, a productive place, a place of flourishing. So salvation then consists in knowing God as your father in becoming his privileged children and entering into a life with him that's characterized by the concept of being in family, in a place where you're intended to grow and flourish. This inheritance, Peter says, is an enduring one, something imperishable, unspoilable, something that will never fade. Now, at this point, you have to look beyond centuries of Christian tradition with its thoroughly pagan cliché of going to heaven when you die. You know, it conjures up some weird idea that when I die, my spirit will leave my body behind, I'll float off into the clouds, and and I don't know, I'll live this disembodied existence somewhere playing folk songs on ukuleles in some shiny place. That's a picture that has about as much to do with the inheritance that Peter's talking about here as a Woolworths parking lot has got to do with the wonders of New New Zealand mountain scenery. Peter actually has nothing to say about going to heaven when we die. He is talking about something that is stored up in heaven for us, like treasure in a bank that you're going to draw down and put to use at some point. He will get onto place and space and time in his second letter, in uh, 
2 Peter 3.13, when he tells us of a future life in Christ in these terms, where he says, in keeping with God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Peter has a vision of the future that's entirely consistent with what the Old Testament prophets saw, with what the New Testament apostles wrote about, and that is a future bodily resurrection in a renewed creation. But for the minute, he's telling us something else about the nature of the inheritance we have. Our true home is to be at home in God's fatherly love for us. Well, the second thing we come into here is the realisation that we've not yet received the fullness of this inheritance. We're not yet at home. For the present, we are exiles in this place and in this place, we are going to experience suffering. Suffering of all types. Peter's prayer of praise gathers up our present experience of suffering though and reframes it in verses 6 to 9 by joy. True joy at the expectation, he says, of a coming salvation that is ready to be revealed. And right at this point we realise salvation is something more than an abstract idea that we tease out. It's rather embodied in a real person. In all this, he says, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, which have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you trust in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You know, this inexpressible and glorious joy that the Christian have has is not simply some thing we possess, which is how with our 21st century minds we think about um, an inheritance, now, what we actually have is a person. Normally, when you inherit something, um, well, inheritance is the stuff you get, isn't it? It's, it's the property that's left behind when someone dies, the, the, the stuff they can't take with them, as we learnt last week. But here, Peter's really stretching the metaphor of inheritance to its breaking point because we get the inheritance, but we also get the person to whom it belongs. Our true home is to be at home in Jesus Christ, who by his death and resurrection joined us to himself so that we may share in the privilege of being sons in the family. Well, the third section of Peter's praise brings us now into the work of the Holy Spirit. And here we discover the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals God's grace to us in Christ. And one of the things we learn is that he's been at work right from the beginning throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the law, the prophets and the wisdom writings. It was the Holy Spirit at work unveiling what God is doing. And so through the law, the prophets and the writings, he begins to furnish us with the vocabulary, 
the concepts, the images of salvation necessary for us to understand Christ at his coming. So that when we get to the New Testament and we have the, the apostles preaching the gospel and we discover it is the Holy Spirit powerfully at work now, we discover it's the same thing going on that was always going on. We don't have two different things. An old thing, an old, gospel, an old Testament God of terror and violence, and now a New Testament God of love and forgiveness, no, the preaching of the Holy Spirit has been consistent from beginning to end. And the theme he has woven throughout the saving work of God has been grace. Grace and grace alone towards his people Israel and now towards his people in Christ, God's salvation has always and only ever been pure gift, freely offered, undeserved, unearned. The difference is that the Old Testament prophets could only dimly see where this was going and he tells us the angels had no clue. They wished they knew we have the privilege now in the light of Jesus, of having it made clear to us. We live in a, in a privileged era because Jesus is transparent to us. We're not in the dark. But nonetheless, we know partially we're yet to see it fully. Furthermore, Peter tells us that we have any capacity to recognise it and receive it is also the work of the Holy Spirit. He will go on later in the letter to affirm exactly what the other apostles teach. He says in chapter 4, verse 14, he tells his people, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It's exactly what Jesus promised his disciples at the last meal, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's exactly what the, the apostle Paul said to the Galatians God had done for them, sent the spirit as a seal of ownership on us, what he called a, a, down, posit, uh, sorry, a, a down payment or a deposit, guaranteeing the inheritance we yet to receive. And what is the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul says in Galatians 4.6, God sent him into our hearts, who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer slaves, but God's children. And since you are his children, he's made you into his heirs. The Spirit is constantly showing us our true home, constantly revealing the home we have in Christ. So to become a Christian is to become an exile, no longer at home in this existence, a person longing for the true home. And being at odds with this world's realm, we are going to experience discomfort from within and from without because we no longer fit the values and aspiration of our culture. Peter will have a lot more to say about suffering as he goes on, and we'll get to that in coming weeks. But I want you to note for the minute, his starting point is not our suffering. The correct frame of reference for making sense of life and living it well is the saving action of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because the Father saves us into an inheritance, we live with hope and not despair. Because of the personal presence of Jesus, 
we live with joy, not fear. And because of the revealing work of the Spirit, we live as sons, coming to know him more and more, even as we are known. There's so much we could say about this landscape that Peter's put in front of us. But let me conclude with a couple of insights. The first is, is this, that when you came to Christ, you might realise that God didn't suddenly whisk you away. He didn't suddenly kind of snatch you up and say, great, come with me. No, he actually left you right here, right where you are. This is where we learn to work out our salvation as exiles, as resident aliens in a world not our home. The object of that exercise, uh, there are many objects, but one of them, of course, is to grow us in trust of Jesus. That's the purpose. And one of the other reasons that God leaves us here, I'm sure, is that we are meant to be a signpost for others. The kingdom of God is only visible in the world because we are here. And that's why Peter's going to go to great lengths in the coming weeks to spell out what it means to live well in the sight of the culture round about us. Living well as aliens. And our need now to live as exiles is in fact a sign that all humanity is alienated. All humanity has been cast out of home. All humanity is really just fumbling around in the dark, trying to assemble some sense of place, some purpose, some identity out of the confusing array of material that comes to hand day by day. Because simply to be alive in the 21st century is not to be at home. Pay attention to the messages of our music and, and our storytelling and our movies. We are repeatedly being told about our culture sense of displacement, our sense of incompleteness, our, our alienation. We're, we're looking for a place of belonging. Peter's going to offer us a compelling vision of our true and better home. Here is a belonging and a solid identity that our culture can only dream about. Here is a joy that goes well beyond all the pursuits of happiness that our culture is feverishly uh, hunting for. And here's a settled place. In fact, a milk and honey homeland, a country compared to which all other countries simply don't compare. And what's at the centre of this? Well, at the centre of this is the fact that God the Son also became an exile in his own place and among his own people. He was rejected by his family. He was rejected by his own hometown. He was ultimately rejected by his own nation and they cast him outside his own city. He went out there to die in order that God might bring us in. He became cast out so we could be brought in to the family. Peter concludes his letter by saying, Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen.